This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. Today, I'm ready to receive the incorruptible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. I'll never be the same again. Come on. Never, never, never. In Jesus' name, amen. Best shout ever. It's pretty good. I have wrestled with this chapter all week long. We have been reading it. We left last Sunday and took a challenge to read Philippians 3 every day. And every day I read it, I just felt like I think I'm flunking this test. Like counting all things is garbage. And I really did. I mean, I was trying to say it to preach a message. I really asked myself, how do you get there as a Christian where everything else in your life other than Jesus Christ is garbage and worthless? And, I, you know, I, I would even tell Robin, I'd say, I just, don't, I just don't even know if I'm a good Christian. Like, I don't, like, I know I love Jesus, but, I mean, I'm reading what Paul is saying and all of his accolades, all of his degrees, all of his religion, everything he worked so hard for, all of his gold stars, all of his attaboys, all of his pats on the back, all of the things that he probably had hanging on the wall of his house maybe, the tassels on his religious clothes, respected in the community. Everybody thinks he's incredible. Everybody thought he was anointed. Everybody's a Pharisee above Pharisees. All the things that he worked for, he just looked at it and said, well, you know what, it's really just all worthless. Everything I've, I've, I've been striving for, everything I worked so hard for, everything I did to be head and shoulders above everybody else, everything I strove for in the rat race of life to become better than the next person, to reach the ladder of success, to be well-liked in my community, to be well-thought-of among other people. He said, every bit of that, I just, I guess, count as worthless. One version says dung. One version says trash. One version just simply, in the Greek, I'll spare you the S-H-I-T, but in the Greek, it has that kind of force behind it. It has a very much, it's just meaningless. It's worthless. I don't even count it any value at all. And I'm just thinking, man, I, I just don't know if I'm there. I mean especially in American Christianity. It's just how much are you serving? Are you serving? Are you on a team? Are you in a group? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Are you living right? Did you quit drinking? Did you quit smoking? Did you quit cussing? Did you, did you, did you stop? Do, 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 don't, don't. And it's just almost like even though we say we're free in Christ, it's just like we're more bound than ever by all the things, the guilt trips we put you on. Oh, I can't believe you didn't come to church today. I can't believe you're not on a team. I can't believe you don't read your Bible. I can't believe you don't tithe yet. And we really say we're free, but really all we are is just guilt tripping people into doing rules so we can all kind of weigh ourselves on, well, how spiritual I am. Because if we don't weigh each other against rules, I never know how spiritual I am. Because my spirituality is based on being at least a little better than you. My spirituality is based on at least conquering a little more of my hell than you so I can at least be a little better than you. And, and we can fight over it. Who, who is a little better? And then because of that, because we strive to climb the ladder, we strive as hard as we can to 
uh, live a godly life and be good, the moment my good starts becoming bad, rather than standing up and going, oh, hey, hey, I'm bad and I really could use a little help, we back away and go, I don't want to let anybody know I'm bad because I've worked so hard to be good. I, I, have, I have pressured my life into being so good, I cannot step back and go, oh, well, I'm really not as good as you thought I was because I'm a human and I'm really having a hard time here. And so even Christianity itself lends itself into a rule-keeping religious game. And I just don't think you die for that stuff. Like I think if they came in and just started holding knives to our throat, I would, that's what I would ask Robin, I would say, and if they came in and they put a knife to my throat and said, we're going to cut your head off if you don't deny the Lord, I really believe I wouldn't. Like I'm, I'm being honest with you, I don't think I would, but in the moment I would be like, man, I'm going to need some grace for this one. Because I just, do I love the Lord the way Paul was saying he loved the Lord? That's what I've been fighting all week. Okay, yes I do, no I don't. Okay, i got to hold this stuff as garbage, but I don't know if I do. I wish I could. And so every day I just wrestled with it. Like, I think I'm flunking. Okay, since I'm flunking, I'm going to go eat some Mexican food. That will help me feel better about myself, and I'll try to figure it out over there. And it just, you know. And then Paul says, verse 7, if you'll put it back up there, verse 7. He said, you know, he says, I once thought it was all valuable but I considered them worthless because of what Christ has done. So as I work this out this week, I realize he's not asking me not to like my boat or my car or my motorcycle or my guitars or my college education. Or He's not asking me to just look at all that and go, oh, that's just stupid. He just simply says it's worthless depending on how you weigh it. If I'm going to spend my life weighing my Christianity against you, I need all that stuff. But if I'm going to weigh it against the Lord and what He's done, He said, well, it's going to lose every time because it's, invalu it's, it's valueless when it's compared to knowing Him, when it's compared to His work for you. And, and it is a difficult ride, I mean, especially in America because we, we are kind of forced to climb the ladder. And, I, you know, when we built this church, um, my office was going to be upstairs. And as I prayed, I thought, you know what, I... I don't think I want to be up. I think I want to be down just to remind me to serve people and not serve myself. And so I, on purpose, took an office down in the basement. Uh, I kind of like it actually now, but, um, but it's hard. Like, you know, I've got three college degrees, and so it's easy to say, well, I've got three college degrees. I can pull it off the wall and man, if I went back to my house and got all the plaques through the years that I've won and the recognitions that I've won and all the things I've been, I've been president of the Chamber of Commerce, I've been this, I've been that, and I stack all that up, I mean, if I'm going to compare it to you, it makes me feel better. But Paul says it's just worthless compared to knowing him. So this is what I've been working out. Because something threw me for a loop, and this is what began to throw me for a loop. How can this man tell me that everything he worked for is now garbage? What happened in his life to get him to that point? Does he know something about Jesus I don't know? Does he have a different relationship? Because I'm struggling with it, and he seems pretty clear on it. He seems like he's got it under control. Now this same guy that's telling us everything I have earned, 
I'm counting as loss compared to Jesus is the same guy in the book of Acts that's doing his best to kill Christians. So what flipped? What happened that just snapped in his brain that went from, I'm going to kill every Christian I can and throw them into prison to, uh, man, everything I've ever worked for is just dung and garbage and trash compared to knowing Jesus. Something had to happen. Something had to happen in him that's different than what I see in us as American Christians most of the time. Because American Christianity is not the Jesus that says, He's so valuable, all my stuff is worthless compared to Him. It seems the American Jesus is, Hey, I just want you to go bring a lot of value to my stuff. And all my prayers are, Give me a house, give me a car, fix this, fix that, answer this prayer, pray pay this bill, heal this part of my body so that Jesus just kind of becomes a four-leaf clover in my pocket, kind of a genie in the magic lamp that when I really need him, I rub him and I let him do his magic for me. That Jesus. And I like that Jesus. That Jesus is really good because he blesses me. He gives me cars and lands and houses. And I love that prosperity Jesus fix all my stuff. But if I'm talking about dying, you're going to chop my head off for it. Would we really die for it today? If somebody was standing right there at that door before you came in and said, by the way, if you go in, we're going to kill you. Do you love Jesus enough that you would have come in the door anyway and said, well, take your best shot because I love him. My comment in the first service was, I do love the Lord. At least I would come to the property, but I would have probably stayed in the parking lot. <laughs> Right? Like, okay, I'm going to go in the sanctuary, I'm going to chop my head off. Oh, I, don't know if I'm, I don't know if I love it that much. I don't know if I love this thing called church that much. I don't know if I love coming to do church is so much that I could lose my head for it. I don't know if it's that important to do communion that you're going to chop my head off. I guess I just go home and do communion if you're going to chop my head off for it publicly. You see, I don't even have to deal with that. That's so foreign to me that... I, it's even hard for my brain to wrap around it until I get a call from a missionary friend in India who one of his pastors has a church and they came in and blew up his car. They took him out and beat him in the street and they threatened to take his kids and his wife off if he didn't shut his church down. What would any normal person do? Shut your blooming church down and move somewhere else. Not this guy. This guy basically says, uh, no, I'm not going to quit preaching the gospel in this town. Because I love Jesus, burn my car, do whatever you have to do, beat me in the streets. And here was his comment. Literally felt like it was worth being beaten because that's how much value I place in Christ. And I'm like, man, he's smoking something. Because I don't have that value of Christ here. And maybe I don't need to. Maybe it's America and then therefore the spoiled Jesus fits my theology better. But will I die for him? Because here's what I know in the Old Testament. In the old, if, if rules could fix it, don't drink, don't smoke, don't sleep around, don't, 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 don't. If rules could fix it, the Old Testament would have been plenty. But it could not do what it needed to do. 
It basically kept God in a box, kept God at a distance, and only once a year a dude could come in, and when he came in, he came in kind of skeptical, like I might die, I might not die, I don't know, but I'll try it out. They knew him in a rock, they knew him in a cloud, but it didn't fix anything. And I hear so many Christians say, well, you know, man, I'm just inspired by Noah, inspired by Daniel, inspired by Samson, inspired by all these people. And I'm like, great, they're good inspirations, but they're put in the Bible not so you can become more like King David and more like Solomon and more like Samson. They're put in the Bible to say no matter how hard you try, no matter how high you get, no matter how powerful you think you are, you will fail every time because you will never achieve what God wants you to achieve in the Old Testament. It is impossible. Every story given is not so we can teach our children to become like King David, be bold like Daniel. Every story is to tell us that even when you're bold, even when you're a king, even when you push down the pillars with your strength, at the end of the day you're hopeless because you will never be who Jesus wanted you to be. And a lot of Christianity is built on that today. A lot of Christianity is just built on be the best you you can be. Strive to be the best you. Strive to be the best version of yourself. And you will never achieve it. Try, 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 try. Rule, 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 rule. And we will blow every one of them. So then we come into the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And now it's just about experience. You would think if... if 39 books of the Bible couldn't do it. These four will definitely do it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus will definitely remedy the problem. You walk with him. You talk with him. You go on the water with him. You see the miracles. You, you hear his teaching. You eat bread with him. You sleep with him. You walk with him. You talk with him. You smell his garments. You know what his hair looks like. You see the goop in his eyes when he wakes up. I mean, you have that kind of relationship with him. Experience. And yet with all the experience those 12 boys had, not one of them made it. Every one of them tucked tail and ran. Every one of them said, nope, not going to do it. Don't want to die for him. I mean, he's a great teacher. He is a prophet. He probably could be the son of God. We really believe in him. He's really cool. He does some really great miracles. And man, if we had some experiences, our hair has stood up on the back of our neck. Hey, remember when he turned the water into wine? Oh, I remember that one. Oh, you remember when he raised a dead girl up? Oh, I remember that one too. And all my hair's standing up and I'm having a Holy Ghost moment. But the moment the sword comes out and they arrest him it's like peace out bro I'm not going that way I don't mind going to conquer the kingdom as long as you're in charge and winning but I'm not dying for this thing I don't believe in it enough to die for it that's what they're wrestling with I believe in it enough to be blessed I believe it in enough to find favor. I believe it in enough so I'll be your right hand dude and everybody will look at me because I'm probably going to be the one to sit on your right hand. I love you enough to walk through the streets with you so people kind of notice me too. But the moment it comes down to dying for you, uh, I don't know him. I had not got a clue who he is. But hadn't you been with him? Me? Oh, no, I don't even know who he is. So that these guys that couldn't even tell you that they believed in him because they felt threatened. What flipped? 
what was it in these 12 motley crew kind of dudes that went from, peace out, bro, man, it's been fun knowing you, great experiences here, got a lot of good stories to go tell my kids about, but hey, I'm not going to die for you. And in less than 40 days past the resurrection, every one of them had flipped the narrative and every one of them now are willing to die. Why? What happened? Did they get more religious? They've had thousands of years of religion and it didn't work. How could you have any greater experience than watching him, talking to him, sitting with him, sleeping with him, eating with him, smelling him? How could it get any greater than that? But that didn't work because they all tucked tail and ran. So what happened from the death and resurrection to, oh, I'll die for him. Chop my head off. So the 12 guys that tucked tail and ran, I did a little, not a lot of research, but I want to just show you what happened to them. Look at the TVs, if you will, because these are the guys that tucked tail and ran. Peter and Paul ended up in Rome. They crucified Peter upside down, and they beheaded Paul. Think about that. This is the dude that ran and said, I don't even know him. And yet something happened in the brother that said, oh, don't even crucify me the right way. Flip me upside down and do it upside down because I'm not even worthy to be killed like my master. What happened to Paul who used to be Saul who hated Christians so violently he would kill them, approve of their stoning and throw them in jail who's now willing to lose his head and have his head chopped off? This is the guy that says rejoice in the Lord always is about to get his head chopped off. This is the guy that says be anxious for nothing. Why did I tell you that? Because I'm kind of pretty anxious about losing my head here. But I'm going to tell you to be anxious for nothing. What flipped? Did they find a magic pill, a magic drug? Did something happen in this 40 days from resurrection to something shifted? Let's look at the others. Here we go. We're going to run through them. Andrew went to Asia Minor in Greece, and they crucified him in Greece. Thomas went to Syria and India, and they pierced him through with spears of four soldiers in India. Philip went to North Africa and Asia Minor to preach Jesus. They arrested him and cruelly put him to death in Asia Minor. Matthew, he went to Persia and Ethiopia and some of the oldest reports say he was not martyred, while others say that he was stabbed to death when he was in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, he's a busy brother. Don't hear about him a lot, do you? Went into four different regions to preach Jesus. There were various accounts, but it's, it was pretty believed that he became a martyr and gave his life for Jesus as well through death. James went into Syria. They stoned him and then clubbed him to death. He was the Lord's brother. Simon the Zealot went into Persia and they killed him after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god, so they put him to death. Matthias went into Syria. He died by being burned alive. John is the only one who was exiled that died a natural death. They exiled him to the Isle of Patmos and he's the one that wrote the book of Revelation. Surely I come quickly. So I'll just ask you this all. What happened? Did they join a new club? 
Why did they go from I'm not going to die to burn me alive, chop my head off, bury me, boil me in oil? If you go and read about all the early Christians, it's literally brutal. Some of them were stripped of their skin, stripped alive, shredded. Why? For, 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 the old, for the religion? Paul said, all the religion's worthless to me. For an experience? I'm not dying for an experience. I can go have an experience at another church. Oh, did you know they're killing you at believers? Yeah, okay, I'm not going there. Let's go somewhere else and have an experience. Because that's not the one I want, right? But experiences don't work. I've had a lot of them. I've had my hair stand up. Ooh, God's in the room. Oh, the anointing was thick. Ooh, wasn't that powerful? Man, God was there. Oh, the Holy Ghost was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And then five minutes later, I'm falling apart. Two days later, my life is falling apart. Came to an altar and God just wrecked my life. And less than a week later, I'm just right back in the same funk. Why? Because experiences will never set you free. Religion will never set you free. All you need, just join a team, man. Get on a team. Serve on a team. Get in a group. Get in a group. Serve on a team. Get in a group. Get in a group. Serve on a team. Good. Do it all you want to and you'll fall apart every time. Because that doesn't work. Well, come to church. Just come to church. Just come, Man, just come to church. Whatever you do, come to church. Okay, good. It's good for you. You'll get pumped up. But you won't overcome that way either. It just doesn't work. So I've been wrestling with it. And now go back to Philippians 3 because I want to take a few minutes and tell you kind of what I worked out for me of what makes it worth willing to die. And I think I came to now. I think I can answer, yeah. Although I started out pretty weak at the beginning. Philippians chapter 3 verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. And then this phrase, I want them to leave it up there because I want it to soak in because of what Christ has done. Now there's the line of demarcation in the sand that tells me there's a difference between the scared, run for your life, not going to die, draw the line in the sand, what Christ did, good, I'll die for that. So that is the line in the sand. So as I thought about it, I thought, well, okay, die for the cross. He died for me. Die for the resurrection. Like, what makes Christ so valuable? So I just kept reading every day to figure it out. Verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so I could gain Christ. Verse 9. And become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. Verse 10, I underlined it, I highlighted it, and I thought, gosh, that's the answer I've been looking for. Verse 10, leave it there. I want to know Christ. That's the answer. You say, how is it the answer? Because here's what Christ has done. When Christ died for me, and when Christ raised himself by the Holy Spirit up for me, he said, look, Mark, here's what I did. I now made myself available to be known. Okay, wait, now you're throwing me. 
because I thought I could already know you. Over here in the Old Testament, we could know you. We could know your laws. We could know your ways. We could, we could know you. He said, yes, but now you can know me. Okay, wait a minute. I thought they knew you here. They knew where you went. They knew where you sleep. They knew where you live. They knew where you were. They knew that you were the son of Mary and Joseph. They knew you. So now you're, he's saying, I want to know Christ. And I'm like, wait a minute. Everybody already knew you and flunked the test. They knew you were from Galilee. They knew you were a prophet. They knew you were a backwoods redneck. They knew that you came from Nazareth where nothing good. They know all that stuff. So what do you mean I want to know Christ, that that is the answer? It's more than just knowing his stories. It's more than I want to know him beyond experience, beyond the rules, beyond the regulations. I want to know him. Okay, all right. Then explain what you mean. And go back up one verse because in one verse it explains it. I want to become one with him. Do you see? Because here in the Old Testament, he lives in a box and I live in a tent and we're not one. I can follow him. I can, I can choose to follow him, but I'm probably going to fall and blow it. And Now in the Gospels... Man, it's even tighter because now he's not in a box, he's in skin. And we can smell him and touch him and eat with him and sup with him and dine with him and see the miracles, but I'm still not one with him. We're still two separate people. He's Jesus and I'm Peter. He's Jesus and I'm Saul. He's Jesus and I'm Matthew. But the moment the line of demarcation comes and he raises from the dead, he said, boys, it's about to get really interesting here because now what had never been done in the history of humanity because I died and came back to life is now done. Why? Because now our relationship is not about you following me or you knowing my decrees or you following my word. Relationship with me now is you have become one with me. In other words, I move inside you and I live in you and breathe in you and move in you. As a matter of fact, we even sing songs like in Him we live and move and have our being. What we're literally saying is, I'm one with Him. You look at me, you see Him. You look at Him, you see me. I'm one with Him. And that is what Paul means to know him. It means you know him in a oneness kind of level. You know him. In other words, it's not two people. It's not Mark trying to live for God and keep all the rules. It's Mark understanding that he has moved in me and now he just lives through me. It's not me living for Jesus. It's Jesus living through me. Therefore, if Jesus is living through me, I don't have to worry about all the rules and the regulations because he will keep them perfectly. If it's about Jesus living through me, I don't have to worry about all the sinful behaviors I used to have because if he and I are one and he's living through me, well, he's going to perfectly fulfill everything. So now all I got to do is just do the, I just got to die to me. Because uh, he lives in me. Like this is the answer to all of life. Know Christ. 
And for 2,000 years, a lot of Christianity has been preaching, stop sinning, quit sleeping around, quit getting drunk, quit, 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 stop, 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 stop. I think what we need to say is know him, know him, know him, know him, know him, know him. And if you'll just know him, he will solve every problem you've ever had. Every sinful behavior will die. And yet what we say is stop doing it, stop doing it, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. If you don't, he's not going to like you. If you don't, you're going to be off the leadership team. If you don't, we're going to think worse of you. If you have a sin, we're going to cast you aside. So that really as I've looked at my past life and I see all my mistakes and failures, failure, failure, oh God, failure, failure. oh geez, I fell there. Yeeks. It's I forgot to know him, I forgot to know him. I forgot to know him. I knew myself more than him. I, I used him for my own gain. I used his power for my own glory. Oh, man, I definitely wasn't living the one. I was living two. I was using him like a genie, using him like a four-leaf clover, using him like a butler, using him like a best friend, using him like a cousin. But I definitely wouldn't let him live through me because when I failed right over there, it was all about me wanting Jesus to fix things. And the line in the sand is, that's just not the way it works. The line in the sand is, we're one. We're just one. I know that almost can throw you for a loop. Like, you look at me, you should see Jesus. Because he lives in me. And the war is, I don't want him to live in me. I want to be in charge, and I just want to keep him in my pocket so I don't go to hell. And he's like, Mark, you're thinking Old Testament here. You're thinking Gospels. You're still trying to live for me when I said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That, that's long before I died for you, Mark. I'm not asking you to follow me now. I'm asking, can I live in you? I'm not asking you to follow me. I'm asking, can I live in you? Can I move in you? Can I become president of your life? Can I become resident in your soul? Can I be a habitation? I love what Derek said last week. It's the difference between God being a habitation versus a visitation. He lives in me. He dwells in me. I, everywhere I go, he goes with me. And then that's even selfish. Everywhere I go, he goes with me. If he really is Lord, shouldn't it be, well, wherever he goes, I go. Well, whatever he says, I think I'll say. And here's the harder thing. The harder thing is there's nowhere on earth that can define what I'm talking about. So God gave us an analogy of marriage. And God said, if you want to know how Jesus thinks about us being one with him, then look at a husband and a wife because they are one. Wife, can I borrow you? Will you come up here, please? She's coming. Give her a hand as she comes. I'm putting her on the spot. <laughs> this, this oneness. Now here's what's weird. Oh, she's even got her little purse and everything. She just walked in because she, she doesn't come to church. I do. And so, <laughs> I don't know why she married me, but thanks. Now, here's, here's basic American Christianity seen in a marriage. We love each other. We get along, but I'm still me and she's still her. And we argue a lot and we fight over who's going to really get their way and who's going to die to who and who's going to be... But God sees it the way he, I don't. I wish I could even give you a way to see it. The way God sees it is he doesn't even see us as two. He sees us as one. 
And we all know this because when we go to weddings, and the two shall be one. Oh, give them a hand. Praise God. There, there the two go. There they go being two. Because one plus one equals two. One plus one doesn't equal one. But God says when he looks at me and my bride, he says, I don't see two. I just see one. Now do you know why the devil is so against marriage? Because it is the marriage relationship that perfectly displays how the freedom of Christ is to be lived out. We are one together. Her thoughts, my thoughts. Oh, that's no, it's not her thoughts versus my thoughts. Who's in charge? You better submit to me, woman. Well, you better treat me right, man. No, when we come together as one under the covenant relationship of one believer and another believer, this is why it doesn't need to be an unbeliever and a believer, and two believers come together and go, we're now married. God says, good, you're now one. In other words, honey, it's not your thoughts. Mark, it's not your thoughts. It's not his ways. It's not your ways. It's my ways. And if you'll both just die to yourselves and follow me, you'll have a great life together. And then she doesn't have to say, now don't you cheat on me. Let me see. I need to see your Instagram account. I need to check all your emails here. You see, that's a woman where we're living like too. I don't know if I can trust him as far as I can throw him. And then I'm scared to tell her I'm struggling because if I tell her I'm having a struggle, what if she boots me out? So then we just kind of live holding hands, faking it. Struggling to become one. Struggling, hearing sermons. Well, why don't you just preach and tell women to submit? So we preach, submit, submit. And she's over here like, no, I'm not submitting to a jerk. I'm not submitting to someone who's following his own ways. And so the whole relationship is one. And I don't even know how to explain it because I can't crawl down in her belly. She can't crawl in my belly. But from kingdom life, the only way this works is both of us die to us and both of us say, it's not my thoughts, my will. It's not your will or your thoughts. God's will and thoughts now inhabit us as a unit called marriage and he is one with us and we will do whatever he tells us to do. So if I must submit and you must submit and I must live right and you must live right, the only way that's going to happen, we both have to press in to know him more. Thank you. Give my bride a hand. We have to know him. It's not her job to keep me holy. It's not my job to keep her holy. But if I press into knowing him and she presses into knowing him, we are going to have the best one marriage we can ever have. The best way I can define it, this is cheap, so I'm giving you a cheap one here. This is just feel free to take me to Mexican and go bless his heart. The best way I can define it is the Hulk. Bruce Banner is the Hulk. Is Bruce Banner, who is the Hulk, who is Bruce, who's also the Hulk, who's Bruce. That's the Hulk. If you see Bruce, it's the Hulk. Be careful, don't get him riled up. But if you see the Hulk, calm him down, it's Bruce. Just chill out. That is Christianity. It's Mark, but don't get me riled up because greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And no weapon formed against me will prosper. The greater one lives in me. And he'll come out in boldness and power in life. And he inhabits the praise of Mark. And he lives on the inside of me. And yet we just believe, we love the Hulk. Oh, bless heart, Hulk. My favorite. That's Christianity. This is why we've been struggling. We've been struggling because we do Christianity like Tony Stark. 
I just have all the accolades and the brilliance and then I go put on my suit to perform. That's 90% of Christians. All my accolades and brilliance of how spiritual I am and then every Sunday put on my little Iron Man suit so I can worship and pretend like I'm me and God and all, all this power. I would just like to encourage you to step out of your Iron Man Christianity and get into some Hulk Christianity. It ain't about putting on a suit. It's just about everywhere you go, you are. And everywhere you are, you is. And you will always be. And you will always carry it around. And you will always... This is the way it works. And I love it in Endgame if you go see. I don't even know why I went this way, but I feel like I need to get popcorn or something. I don't know. But like even in the end game, he just now is the Hulk that's sweet. He's just kind of Bruce and the Hulk meld into one. He just never turns back. I really think that's Christianity. I just become so much like Jesus, I never turn back into Mark. I just become so much like him because I've spent time with him. I know him. I want to know him more and more. Galatians chapter 4 says that he puts his spirit in me. This is how this thing works. Corinthians chapter 2, just so for those of you that like to study it out. Corinthians 2, you ever heard this? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, that, that verse. And we kind of think, okay, think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Oh, God, i got to think because I'm about to kill him. Oh, no, think like Jesus. Okay, make a whip and beat him. Yeah, Jesus whip. That's kind of what we think. Like my thoughts need to be Jesus' thoughts. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think it's deeper than just you trying to think like Jesus. Because Corinthians 2 says, I will put my spirit in you, and my spirit knows my thoughts, and therefore you can't even know my thoughts, but once I put my spirit in you, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but I will reveal it to you by the spirit. Therefore, what I get out of that verse is, I can be so one with God that I know his very thoughts. He will tell me his thoughts. He will download his thoughts because he's living through me. Like I can know what the God of heaven thinks about this situation. Because he lives in me. He will download his thoughts to me. The Bible even says he will share secrets with me. 1 Corinthians 14 says his spirit prays through me. All this being one with him fixes everything. Because now if I say, I don't know if I would die for him when you're talking about the little Jesus of history, the, the Jesus of the stones. But if you start talking about being one, I'll die now. I love Justin. I love you a lot, buddy. I don't know if I'd take a bullet for him. But I love you. But I might. Might not. But I could. But I would try to push you out of the way and dodge at the same time. But for my wife, not even a question. Not even a question. I would lay my life down for her, zero question. Because I'm one with her. I'm so one with her after 29 years, I know what she's thinking before she ever even says it. All I got to do is just check her eyeballs and go, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> even when I got her on the back row, I could tell, I don't really want to come up, Mark. You're making me come up. I'm going to have a talk with you after this is over. And she never even said that. She was just smiling the whole time. But I've been married to her 29 years. 
the beauty of 29 years together. We don't even have to talk. I just pick up what's going on. I can tell if she's in a good mood or a bad mood. I can tell how she's doing. I can read her body language. I know the energy coming, which it sounds weird, like, but I know the energy coming off of her because I know her because I'm one with her. And she the same with me. Well, you've had a bad day. I know. Oh, I can tell. I can just feel it on you, Mark. What's going on? We go out on a date with people, and I'm a talker, and most of you saying, yeah, hurry up and shut up so we can get out of here. But she, in our early years, she would pet my leg when we would go out, and I would think, she's so wonderful, she's petting me. Man, I might get lucky tonight, she's petting me, hallelujah. <laughs> and what I came to find out is she wasn't petting me because she thought I was so wonderful. She was petting me in the only way a wife can pet you, which is, okay, shut up, you've been talking a lot, it's time to really be quiet, right? Become one with her. Now when you ask, would I die? It's not a question. I would definitely do it. Because I'm one. And this is the whole point of the gospel. Maybe the reason we're struggling with sinful behavior. Maybe the reason we're struggling to live it and always falling and failing is because we're trying to do it in an Old Testament perspective. Putting on the suits of religion. Putting on the Iron Man costume to perform. When really what we need to say is, it's never going to work. So turn to Colossians and I'll end here. And listen to Colossians 1. For those of you that are part of our house, this is our Bible reading for the week. We're going to read it every day. Justin will come back and read it at the end of the week. But I want to give you something to ponder. Verse 27, 28, and 29 of Colossians 1 as we close. For God wanted them to know that the riches of the glory in Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in His glory. So we tell others about Christ. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on what Christ's mighty power has done and works within me. That's the beauty of Jesus. Is He's just trying to work in you, live in you, and commune with you. Would you stand? Let me pray for you, if you will. I don't know where you are in your religious walk with God, but I can help you a little bit. Rules are wonderful, but they won't bring freedom. Experiences are great. We can talk about them, tweet about them, and take pictures. But they're not lasting. The thing that's lasting is Colossians, Christ in me. And this is the line of demarcation. I had rules and rocks here. I had here all kind of experiences. But once I stepped over in the resurrection, I went from experience to relationship of oneness. He just lives in me. So Father God, right now, I bless this house. Lord, I thank you for the life that comes into this house. I ask you to let this sink deep down in our hearts. I ask God that all week as we read this chapter out of Colossians, every day I ask you to make it more and more clear. Every day I ask you to answer the questions, are we really trying and, and striving to just know you? To know your thoughts, your ways. What do you want us to do? God, that we would stop trying to live for you and we would start letting you live through us. Lord, I thank you as we sang a moment ago, we just want you and nothing else. And that will fix everything else. 
Father, I give you thanks and I give you praise for it. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church podcast. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there's anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next week for a brand new message.